Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, yeah, I, I uh, just mentioned when I got up to speak upstairs and they started playing that right when Ben started praying is it, it is effective in shortening prayers. So, uh, but, you know, we clearly don't have any issue or need to shorten a sermon. So, just you guys... How many of you had a chance to be here Wednesday night with the food packing? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that a cool evening? I think I heard 44,000 meals, you know, we ended up, you know, packing. And, and I want to commend all of you, you just raised your hand, uh, for being good sports. You stuck around to the very end when clearly my table did more than any other table. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, that was good. That was good. That was our third time of doing that, and um, you know, and it's it's it was a big part of that was all possible because uh, Tony Anderson, uh, who was a faithful sister in Christ for many years, a part of this church, and when she passed away, you know, she uh, you know kind of surprised us with with leaving um, a chunk of money to the church that we've been able to use. For things like that. That's why that happened on Wednesday is because of Tony and her love for the Lord. So, so that was great. I appreciated uh, the fact we had 200 people in this room busy working Wednesday night. Let me, let me start off by saying a couple of words about the day of my conversion. This, this is something that, you know, I, I do bring up. Now and then, it's something that is very memorable to me. I don't know that it's greatly memorable to many other people, but, but to me, very much so. And I review it in my mind, you know, at, at multiple times a year. And that's part of how uh, so much of it remains vivid. And one of the things about it that was just so special was I remember that evening sitting, sitting in a car, and heading back to Silver Lake, and um, and I just remember the feeling of having like a great big load lifted off my shoulders. You ever heard people talk about that before? About about you know when when uh, they're forgiven, it's just like this big weight was taken off their back or off their shoulders, and and I very much believe that 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 experience happens because I experienced it myself. And because I, I'm not proud of the type of life that I was living the way I was during the majority of my teen years, the world revolved around me. And, you know, and I didn't care what anyone thought about that. And, and so I made the kind of choices and everything that reflected that in my life. But, uh, um, but, but when I turned to the Lord, it, it was refreshing to be able to experience forgiveness. Now, having said that, I'll say this. It wasn't an easy decision to make. I mean, in some regards, it was a very clear and should have been an easy decision to make because I knew I needed to make it. But I knew it was going to create turmoil in my family if I made that decision. I knew when this hit the fan, it wasn't going to be pleasant. And I'm talking about my immediate family. I still had one more year of high school to go through, so I, I wasn't moving out just yet. And, and uh, um, yeah, when, when I reported back about what I had done, uh, things got pretty heated for a good year uh, or a little over a year in in my immediate family, in the extended family, I mean, my dad, you know, he came from a family with nine brothers and sisters, and mom had six or seven brothers and sisters, and, and, uh, and so I, I've got so many first cousins that I don't even know their names. I maybe know half of them, you know, by name, and big families, and, you know, the, the family never had family reunions, we had weddings instead. That's when everyone would get together. And then years later, it was funerals. That's when everyone got together. 
but uh, it was um, just about a year and a half after I gave my life to Christ that Colette and I got married, and I had one aunt and uncle that came, and that was it. And, you know, and so the extended family, that continued on for some time. And so I, I knew that, that, you know, some of that was, was going to play out. And that's what was causing me to drag my feet as far as making this all-important decision that I knew I needed to make, but yet I kept hesitating on. And it was in the evening of of um, the week, uh, it was a Thursday when I read this passage, and I actually read this passage three times, and at the end of having read it the third time that I made that decision and uh, accepted Christ that night, here's what this passage says. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before men I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. See, what Jesus is talking about here is, He's saying that because of him, uh, there was going to be turmoil that was going to be stirred up in families. He goes on and says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves, I- anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that's the passage I read three times. And at, at the end of that third time that I read it, it was just, it, I was so convicted that this is what I was doing. The whole reason I was dragging my feet is, is I just didn't want to deal with the grief I was going to deal with on the home front and within the extended family. And, and so that's why, I, thus far, I hadn't made that decision. But, but after reading that passage and fully recognizing the fact that Jesus foresaw that this was going to happen in some families, you know, that, that really helped me to know that I need to do this. And, and I got to tell you something, that it gave me, when I made that decision, it not only lifted a load off my shoulders, um, all, all the guilt and everything uh, uh, being cleansed from. But it also gave me clarity in my life. It helped me to see things in, in a whole lot clearer of a fashion. Now, I was 17 years old, and, you know, when you talk about purpose in life and all of this, you know, I couldn't really see beyond the next football season. I mean, that, that was what, what it was all about to me. It's playing football one more season, my senior year. And, and then, hopefully, to be able to get a couple of years in, even if it's at a junior college, to be able to get a couple more years of football. That's all I could see. That, that, that was as clear, and that's not very clear, of a purpose that I saw in my life until this moment in time. Now I was seeing things a lot clearer. Now I began to recognize that I uh, owed the Lord everything. I knew that my life was to be lived in such a fashion that it was to serve as a continual expression of gratitude for what the Lord had done for me. And, And not just that, not just living in such a way that it was pleasing in God's sight, but I I was seeing that I have a clear purpose laid out before me. I had read numerous passages of Scripture because by that point in time in that summer, I had already read um, right at or a little more than half of the Bible, and and I didn't understand all that stuff, but but I understood, you know, quite a bit of it, And, and yet when I made this decision, all of a sudden, some of the passages that were still kind of hazy and fuzzy, they started to clear up. 
And I started to be able to see and understand what my life was to be all about, what the purpose driving my life was to be all about. And in part, I say that to bring us up to our main verse that we're using in this series, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because this, this is one of those verses. I had read it. I don't know that I really appreciated it, and it certainly didn't bring any conviction in my life when I read it before I made a decision for Christ. But afterwards, when I saw this passage, man, it spoke, it spoke to me in a very convicting way. Jesus said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These were the very last documented words of Jesus before he ascended back into heaven. And Kurt pointed that out last week. His crucifixion had taken place, his burial, his resurrection, numerous resurrection appearances, that had all happened. And now Jesus was about to ascend into heaven. And these are the last documented words that he spoke to his followers. You know, spelling out pretty clearly the purpose that he had for them in what he wanted them to be engaged in. And I got to tell you, over the years, these words have only gotten clearer. They haven't gotten fuzzier. They haven't gotten dimmer. They've gotten clearer and brighter in that this is what God wants. There's two ways of interpreting Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And both ways have merit. Okay, one way of interpreting it is literally. And that's just taking at face value what it is talking about. So think about it geographically when it says that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the ends of the earth. So kind of think about it as a, a, a kind of a radiating out, uh, like a bullseye. Think of it like a bullseye. That Jerusalem, that's right where you're at. Judea, that's the nearby territory. Samaria, that is the surrounding region that's a little further out. And then, of course, the ends of the earth, that's the ends of the earth. That's, that's the rest of the world. And so for us, we would look at that, if you live here in Shawnee, as you would see Shawnee, that this is your home city. This is where it all starts, that you are to be a witness for Christ right here at home, right in your neighborhood. Or if you live in Olathe, it's Olathe. Or KCK, it's KCK is what that's talking about. But then, but then the next where it says Judea, that's like Kansas. That's, that's like the larger area. You are to be an influence, a witness in this larger area. And then Samaria, well, think about the United States. And then you think about the world beyond that. Our missions team, we used this verse 27 years ago to help us um, keep balance in our missions ministry. We used Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We didn't want to be um, a church that was just focused on right here underneath our nose, just the local area, our neighbors and our neighbors only. We didn't want to be that church that was just focused on all of that and like the rest of the world could go to hell sort of thing. But then we didn't want to swing the pendulum to the other extreme where we'd be all concerned about the four corners of the earth and way out there in areas that we had never been and perhaps never will be, that that's where we need to really be investing ourselves and our resources and all of getting the gospel message out and then just totally overlooking the local area where we live and the surrounding area. We wanted there to be balance. And so that's why in our, in our missions ministry, we've been engaged with like City Union Mission throughout the years. Because that's right here at home in the greater Kansas City area, meeting a very definite need. But not just, you know, giving a bed or uh, for people to sleep in or a meal for them to eat, but, but giving them an opportunity to hear the gospel. That's why we've been involved with stuff like City Union Mission. 
Well, this is why in, in a little bit broader of an area, we have been involved with the CEA. The CEA is the organization that helped finance me for three years in starting this church. And as soon as Crossroads went off CEA support at the end of year three, then the church immediately began giving. And for almost 20 years now, Crossroads Christian Church has been the number one contributing church to the Kansas um, CEA. That, that we've been helping make it possible for other communities to have churches not so different than us. One of the most recent ones, and, and I mentioned it upstairs and someone came up to me and said, that's where I grew up is Independence, Kansas. Now, some of you, if you've been in Independence, Kansas, maybe you just drove through or maybe you stopped for gas. Probably a good number of us in this room have never been to Independence. It's not a big place. But yet there was a need for a solid Bible-teaching, preaching church. And the CEA, you helped make this possible, started a church there a couple of years ago. And the church is really doing well for no larger of a community than it is. And the numbers of decisions for Christ and baptisms that have happened is, is pretty encouraging. But we want to be beyond that as well. We want to participate with ministries that impact the country. And this is why we haven't hesitated from mission trips that would involve you know, um, helping out with relief in places like New Orleans after uh, Katrina or, or, you know, down in uh, um, um, Oklahoma City or, or Chapman, Kansas, and some of these places that tornadoes come through and destroy the place. And, and we're wanting to, to make an impact in areas like that. But we also, in the world, right now, we've got a young couple that have ended their seventh month in Japan, and they're starting a new church in Japan. Or a number of years ago, for those of you that have been in the church for a while, um, you will recognize the name Jeff Palmer. Jeff and his wife, Indra, and their kids, they went to New Zealand and started a church there. And Crossroads got behind them and, and supported, I can't remember exactly, 25, 30% of the support that they needed in order to do that. But you see, this, it's this verse that we tried to, to utilize to keep balance in the way we look at things as a church and in, in the way we engage in mission endeavors. So there's the literal, literal interpretation of Acts 1.8. And like I said, there's definite merit in interpreting it that way. But there's another way of interpreting it that I think has, has merit as well. And that is figuratively. To look at, you know, that we, we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Think about that in regards to categories of people that are in your world, you know, involving, involving you or may, perhaps not involving you, but, but think of them as being categories. Jerusalem would be the people who are closest to you, your family members, your relatives, your best friends, your really good friends, people that you hang with. That's what Jerusalem would represent. Judea, these are acquaintances of yours that uh, you know. You may not know them as well as some people, but you cross paths with them, uh, maybe not every week or even every month, but, but yet they are acquaintances that, that you contact from time to time. This would be your Ju Judea, that you have a calling, that you are to be a witness for Christ to those people. Samaria, let me kind of put that on pause moment. I'll come back to it. The, the world, the ends of the earth, you know, well, that's self-explanatory. These are people that you don't know, you haven't ever met, you've never been near their home, and perhaps haven't ever even set, set foot on the soil of their country. But yet you have a calling 
and a responsibility toward them, as I do as well. Samaria, the way figuratively I would interpret this is that Samaria involves the people who are um, socially different than you. People that perhaps live their lives on the other side of the political aisle than you. People that uh, you're not their biggest fan and they're not your biggest fan. People that maybe have a tendency of kind of rubbing you the wrong way sometimes. That's who Samaria would represent. So hopefully that piques your interest a little bit because that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about Samaria, this aspect. I know we're not taking this in order. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it makes it sound like the third message in the series should be Samaria, but we're moving it up to be the second message. And so then, Kurt, next week, we'll talk about Judea, okay? But I think this is worthwhile. What's the deal with Samaria? Let's break this down. To answer that question, we need to do more than just look at a map, but I think that is a good place for us to begin, is looking at a map. There are numerous things in the Gospels that are recorded that involve Judea and that involve Galilee. Eh, there's a couple, not many, that involve Samaria. You see the map that's on the screen. It's not so much unlike the map that perhaps is in the back, just inside the back cover of your Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, usually Bibles have a few maps that are found in there, and, and one of those maps may look um, somewhat like this. What I especially want to draw your attention to is what is over on the left side. Of this, You see down in the uh, lower middle, that blue spot, that is the Dead Sea. And then you go straight up toward the top, there's a smaller blue spot, that is the Sea of Galilee. What connects those two things is the Jordan River. Now these, if you've been a part of church or reading in the Bible, all of these ought to be ringing bells, especially Galilee and the Jordan River. Now, everything left on the, the west side of the Jordan River, that's what I'm talking about uh, here today. When, when the Israelites, when they got out of under um, Moses leading them out of Egypt, out of bondage, they went and remember they got the commandments at Mount Sinai, and then they went into the wilderness for 40 years, and then after that, you know, Moses ends up passing away. Joshua takes the leadership of Israel. They cross the Jordan River into the promised land. It's the conquest of the promised land, which uh, is on the west side of the Jordan River. And they cross just right, on, just barely north of the Dead Sea. Right there at Jericho uh, is where they ended up crossing. And what they did was, once they conquered the land, or mostly conquered it, they started dividing the land up. There were 12 tribes that made up Israel, and so every tribe got a chunk of property. And for a while, you know, they, they you know, functioned like that. That didn't go real well. Read the book of Judges, you'll see that, that they, they weren't very consistent during that time. And the people started crying out that we want to have a king like other nations have kings. And uh, um, the leaders knew that that wasn't going to work very well either. But they went ahead and gave. God ended up giving in to that. And so the very first king of Israel was King Saul. And he reigned for 40 years. He was tall, he was impressive to look at, but a man of character, he was not. He didn't have conviction that took him very far. But he reigned for 40 years, and then after the 40 years, then came David, a man after God's own heart. And you've probably heard numerous stories about David and some of the Psalms that he had written. And then following David is his son Solomon. And Solomon reigned for 40 years as well. So for like 120 years, there was only three kings during that span of time. But then Solomon had a son, and his name was Rehoboam. 
And Rehoboam, um, he made some poor choices. He uh, decided to um, push aside the counsel of his elders, some of the more experienced uh, counselors that had helped his dad, and he kind of brushed them off, and he surrounded himself with people his own age, young people, and just followed their counsel, and this did not turn out very well. In fact, the, the, the kingdom split. It divided into two kingdoms. And, and so what we have then is a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom becomes known or referred to as Israel. Uh, it's made up of ten tribes. The southern kingdom becomes known as Judah. It's made up of two tribes, and that is Judah and Benjamin. And so the southern kingdom does have about 50% of the time some solid kings, you know, as far as morals and and being God-fearing and all. But the northern kingdom, it's just like every one of them, um, was poor. They uh, did not lead people in a healthy direction. Well, this goes on for about 250 years. You can read about this in First, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, some of those books of the Old Testament. For about 250 years, we have this divided kingdom going on. And then there's this world power called Assyria. The Assyrians swooped in and they defeat the northern kingdom. Wasn't that hard? Northern kingdom wasn't that strong. And Assyria was very much so. They were the dominant world power at the time. And they did what they did with most other nations, and that is they, they came in and they deported the healthiest, the strongest, the most promising of people. They deported them into um, either back to the homeland uh, of Assyria or to other nations that they had conquered and they left some of the poor, like the farmers and the poor, in the land. And then they took people from other nations that they had defeated and brought them to the northern kingdom and had them populate, fill, live in the homes of the people that they had taken out as prisoners. And this was a dynamic that you can read about in your Bible in 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 spells out additional details that I'm not going to get to today. But the whole idea here behind what the Assyrians were doing, and this was a common practice, you know, back in that era of time, different world powers when they were in place and they would battle and defeat another one, they would do this same sort of thing. The whole idea here was you wanted the nation that was now under your thumb that you had defeated, you wanted them to lose their identity and to lose any level of national pride that they had. And so the way to do that is to pull them out of the country, make them live somewhere that was far from home, bring other people into the land, intermarry with the ones that stayed there, and introduce some of their customs and practices. And then all of a sudden, you know, in just a few generations' time, um, Basically, the whole identity of that northern kingdom ends up being lost. That's exactly what they were doing. Here's a couple of the verses that talk about it. 2 Kings 17, 29 says, But these various groups of foreigners also continued to worship their own gods. In town after town where they lived, they placed their idols at the pagan shrines that the people of Samaria had built. And so what we have is people from these other nations that had been involved in pagan worship, they brought the pagan worship to Israel. A couple of verses later, it goes on and says, and though they worshiped the Lord, so there were still elements of the worship of the real living God, but, but there were only little elements or glimpses of that. So though they worshiped the Lord, they continued to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. And this is still going on today. At the time that 2 Kings was written, it was still happening. 
they continue to follow their former practices instead of truly worshiping the Lord and obeying the decrees, regulations, instructions, and commands he gave the descendants of Jacob, whose name he, God, changed to, to Israel. And so this, this was mission accomplished as far as the perspective of the Assyrians was concerned. This northern kingdom of Israel basically didn't exist anymore. And you fast forward about 125 years, so you got at least three generations, if not, you know, four generations of people, and, and it's like a distant memory, if even that, the way it used to be. And the way it used to be wasn't that great anyway for the northern kingdom, because they, they, uh, their kings, like I said earlier, had been pretty poor in their leadership. Um, but now it's just like, it's probably not even a distant memory for the majority of them. It's a mixture of a little bit of the living God type stuff mixed in with pagan worship. And this is what is going on there. All right, now you fast forward uh, 120 years. And you have a different world power out there. The Assyrians, they're not the dominant world power anymore. Now you have the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, they come and they defeat the southern kingdom of Judah. This is where, you know, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and, you know, those places are at. And they defeat them. And they do something very similar, the Babylonians, is that they take some of the stronger, more promising and educated people and they, they uproot them and they take them back to Babylon. And again, the whole plan here is to cause, is to cause this country, this nation, to lose its identity in the process as the years pass. But in this case, it didn't happen. Because... Unlike the northern kingdom that was deported out of the land, these people were bound and determined that they weren't going to let that happen. So wherever they were relocated to, they didn't intermarry with other people. They didn't start picking up the practices of other people. And so you have 70 years that pass while many of these people are living in a foreign land. But they've retained their identity. And then you have a friendly king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus wants to send them back to their homeland. And so he does. And so all those people, they come back to Israel, to the land, you know, that their forefathers had owned and the homes and all of this. And, and as soon as they get back, the other people, the northern kingdom blended, you know, hardly resembling, you know, Jewish people of conviction and faith people, they tried to buddy up with them. And they said, hey, welcome back. We want to help you rebuild Jerusalem. We want to help you rebuild the temple. And the true blue Jewish people that had gone to Babylon, they are like, no way. I mean, we, we, we didn't give in to that kind of stuff during those 70 years, and we're not about to do it now because they knew full well the pagan worship and all that was going on. And so basically now what we have, and this was on that map I showed you a moment ago, is that now after all that time, the divided kingdom had played out, the time in captivity and all of that had played out. And so now you mainly have three segments um, on the west side of the Jordan River, way up north, you got the region of Galilee. And this is where a lot of Jewish people settled. This is where uh, Nazareth is at, Capernaum, uh, Cana, uh, where the first miracle took place at the wedding. That's, that's up in Galilee. And then down south, um, just west of uh, the northern part of the Dead Sea, you have Judea, and this is where Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Jericho and some of those, you know, cities are located. But you see something in between. It's Samaria. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are the remnants of what was left of the northern kingdom. But, you know, any, any conviction and faith and practice of faith 
you know, hardly, barely resembles what it had been like over a couple hundred years earlier. So this is the Samaritans. So just trying to give you a little bit of the backstory here. When Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. What exactly were people hearing him say when he said Samaria? He, he wasn't just talking about a region. He was talking about even more than a region. The Samaritans were so disliked that Jewish priests taught that it was sinful to have any contact with them. You avoid them. You do not eat meals in their house. You do not stay in their house. And if you can help it, don't have direct contact with them. You don't have anything to do with them. The worst insult that a Jew could use was to call somebody a Samaritan. You call someone a Samaritan, man, that was a slam. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' opponents called him a Samaritan. John chapter 8, verse 48. They use that label. And they're not trying to flatter him. They're, they're, they're slamming him and everybody would be like, whoa, man, you let him have it, you know, would be the kind of thinking that people would have. It was commonly believed that the Samaritans would lie in wait because Samaria lies in between Galilee and Judea. Um, the, the belief was that it was kind of dangerous to be traveling by yourself or in a small group or at night because bandits could jump you and steal what you have. And so the, the common uh, belief was that Samaritans would wait for the Jewish festivals when people in Galilee would be traveling down to Jerusalem and when they would come through Samaria, they would get jumped and beaten up and their stuff would be stolen. And then that belief extended beyond the festivals any time of the year. And so the practice that ended up developing out of this is that when people were traveling up in Galilee and they wanted to go down to the temple in Jerusalem, they would not travel in a straight line. They would come down just south of the Sea of Galilee, cross the Jordan River, and go down the east side of the Jordan River until they got past the, the area of Samaria, and then they would cross back over into Judea. And that way they didn't even have to step foot in the land of Samaria. And then when you're traveling back north, you do the same thing, going back north. This was a very common practice back at that time. And so all of this, when, when you add it all up, it, it, it all plays into why some of Jesus' actions and teachings were shocking to people. You think about one of the parables that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 10. The parable of the good Samaritan. Remember that parable? What was that all about? It doesn't involve the land of Samaria, but it does involve a Samaritan. It's a guy that's traveling from, a Jewish man that's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he gets jumped by bandits, he gets beat up, stuff gets stolen, and he's left bleeding alongside the road, half dead. And then a priest comes by, which would have been, you know, a true blue Jewish religious man who spent a lot of time around the temple. He comes walking down the road. He sees this man in need of assistance, bleeding there beside the road, kind of lingering between life and death, but he just walks on the other edge of the road and walks on by. And then a Levite, which also would have been a Jewish person, they come walking down the road. They see the man as well, but they just walk on by. Then the third person is a Samaritan. The Samaritan sees this Jewish man that's bleeding there alongside the road. He stops and he crawls down uh, next to the man and he bandages his wounds. He helps him get up on his animal, on his donkey. He takes him to the nearest village and takes him to an inn so he can rest and he can eat. And he gives the innkeeper some money and gives instructions to the innkeeper that I'm, I'm going to be leaving now, but if... 
if he accrues any additional expense, just put that on my tab, and when I come back through, I'll pay that. And that man was a Samaritan. So when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, we just hear it, and we don't read anything into the word Samaritan, but now that you have a little bit fuller understanding of this land of Samaria and the makeup and how that all came to pass and all, now you know that that would have been a shocker to people saying, what? You're a rabbi and you're making a Samaritan the hero? You know, that didn't add up in the ears of anyone that was listening. Or on another occasion, Jesus was traveling from, from Judea and he was wanting to get up into Galilee. And he was very deliberate and intentional. It says in the opening verses of John chapter 4 that he was going to go through Samaria. Instead of doing that other thing that I talked about, he was going through Samaria. And Jesus got tired along the way and he sat down by a well. The disciples went into a town just to get some provisions. And while Jesus is there, a woman comes to the well. And Jesus asks her, could you draw me some water? What's her reaction to that? She's shocked by it. And here's the verse. It says, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I mean, it's stated right there in scripture. And so she was shocked that Jesus would interact with a Samaritan and then it being a Samaritan woman on top of that. But that's exactly what he was doing. And then when, when the disciples ended up coming back from the town, they saw Jesus talking to the woman, and they were all confused and, and wanted to ask him, what's going on here? What are you doing? You know, talking to a Samaritan woman. But nobody dared ask the question. So it's like they're all thinking the same thing, but nobody wants to ask Jesus that question. But you see, that was kind of a shocker in Jesus' behavior. And then now we see that right before the ascension, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. Now see, no one had any problem hearing that. He was saying this, you know, right there close to Jerusalem. And, and no one had any problem with what he was saying so far. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and Boy, people would have gotten hung up on that Samaria bit. Say, what? Is this a bad joke? What's going, what are you talking about? But Jesus was very intentional in what he was saying. You see, the takeaway today, the takeaway of this entire series of messages is that as believers, we have a well-defined, clear-cut purpose to our lives. A very clear purpose to our lives. The last words that Jesus spoke before his ascension. It is of utmost importance that we as individuals and as a church, that we stay focused as to why we are here. And why we're not in glory. You know, for all of us that have made that decision and accepted Christ in faith. Why are we still here? This is why. Because we have a clear purpose. Because if we don't remain clear about that, if we're not careful about it, we can end up finding ourselves getting bogged down with the machinery of the church, maintaining programming for the sake of maintaining programming and having meetings for the sake of having meetings with no ultimate purpose involved in that. We can get so caught up in our personally in our sports teams and following our sports teams and pursuing our hobbies and binge watching whatever series that Netflix pops out with next. We, in the process of, of all of that, we can be forgetting the clear purpose that we have as followers of Christ that Jesus spelled out. God forgive us. If we get so caught up in living comfortable lives that we begin treating the church as simply a social group that we participate in on the weekend. If we ever get to treating it like that. 
Because you see, if our job as Christians was just getting together and worshiping, we could do that in heaven. Why would we still be here? Why wouldn't we be in our eternal home? That's where our citizenship is, according to the book of Philippians. Well, the reason we're not in heaven is because we have a purpose that we are to be all about. We are to be, to use another phrase in the Gospels, we are to be fishers of men. We are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This means we've got a calling, and Japan is a part of that calling. The ends of the earth, a man Jordan, New Zealand, among other places. Smaller towns in Kansas, like Independence. That's a part of our calling, that we are to be influential there. Places like City Union Mission, and right here in our community in Shawnee, this is part of our calling, that we are to be witnesses. And don't forget, this includes that co-worker of yours that gets under your skin. This includes that brother-in-law that normally you don't spend much of any time around, but boy, come holiday season, you know you're going to have to spend two or three days around. And perhaps it's one of the only reasons you dread the holidays. It's because you're going to have to be around him. This includes him or that daughter-in-law that you seem to always be butting heads with or what about that odd neighbor that neighbor that uh, you know when the first of November rolls around and after you've raked all your leaves a strong windy rainy day and you open the door the next morning and your yard is filled with leaves and it happens every year and it's like that's their way of dealing with leaves is just wait for the wind. And then you can rake it. And boy, that burns you, right? Or how about trash cans? That, that, that's a year-round sort of thing, right? You know, in a strong wind, trash can falls over, and the trash is blowing out in the street, some of it in your yard. They don't ever seem to be concerned, that neighbor, about picking it up. And so here you are out there picking up their trash. And that gets under your skin. That's who Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is including. The people that, that you don't, that you're not drawn toward. The people that you would just as soon not be around. You say, well, how can I do that? Man, that's hard. Yeah, well, the good news is you don't have to do that alone. Don't forget the first half of the verse. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit will help you, will empower you, will equip you. Not just with the ability to plant the seeds that need to be planted, but, but by presenting the opportunity and even giving you the words on the occasion, just pray and, and look to, to the guidance that God provides through his spirit. We're going to have our time of communion. And I'll, I'm going to ask you to do something today that during communion, when you take the bread and you eat it in a cup and you drink it, you know, we want, we want that to be a time that you're reflecting on the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf and on my behalf to make it possible for us to be freed from our sin, to have that burden lifted off of our shoulders. This is a time that we celebrate that, we reflect on that. So we never take, take forgiveness for granted. But let me also encourage you that in this time, do some soul searching, some self-examination in regards to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
and just see what is, what is God saying to you in regards to this particular verse and some of what we've talked about here today. Ask the Lord to maybe even bring into mind the faces of some of the people that you've just avoided all contact with. You've been very intentional to minimize any kind of contact with. Ask him to bring that to your mind so you can look at that through the lens of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You and I, we've got a purpose. There is a reason we're still here. So let's not kick that to the side. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that we can read things that have been recorded and preserved for centuries of time, and it still brings conviction to our hearts today. I pray that you will use this, Lord, to, to move us, um, to be the people that you want us to be. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for the incredible sacrifice. And might all of this be a continuing part of the expression of our gratitude as we live in the way that you've called us to live. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.